Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Phil Strazula. He's the founder of Select Software Reviews. Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing is actually really interesting. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you, you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in a small town south of Boston called Cohasset. Okay. Um, it's like one of those places where, you know, there's 86 kids that graduate with you in a a given high school class. And actually, ironically, I connected with another uh, fellow Cohasset alum in the tech space yesterday. And he was saying that his class was 49 people, uh, just kind of give you a sense for the scale <laughs> or lack thereof <laughs> of, uh, of Cohasset Mass. But it, it's a nice little town, um, sort of, you know, nestled in the, in the suburbs there in Boston. Um, and then went to NYU for college, um, wanted to sort of get out and see the world a little bit. And interestingly enough, my grandmother had encouraged me to apply there because she was like, you know, it's it's probably like the only time in your life you can afford to live in New York City because sure. you're going to be a college student. You just don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you take and, and why? Um, I studied finance. I... It's kind of weird. Like when I was a kid, I was growing up in like the late 90s. I was like 10 when it was 95, like the Netscape IPO and all that stuff. And for whatever reason, like I was actually really interested in the stock market. And I think like the big epiphany that I had, I had one when I was in first grade and um, I was like saving all this money and like, you know, had an allowance. And my parents were like, you know, for every hundred dollars you have in a savings account, the bank will pay you five dollars a year, and you just have to keep the money there, and it's still your money. And I was like, "Oh, that's that's really crazy! Like, why? You know?" And of course, you don't really understand like the bank's business model when you're in first grade. Um, but I was kind of like, "Oh, that's like better than doing manual labor. I should do that." And then, you know, fast forward a couple years later, the stock market's sort of booming and, and you just sort of like hear about this stuff when you're listening to adults. And it was, again, another one of these things where I was like mowing lawns and uh, which is, you know, it's hard work and you spend like a morning mowing, mowing the lawn and you get paid 10 or 15 bucks. Uh, and it's like, oh, if you own like one share of this company called Intel and it kind of just like goes up every month, you know, <laughs> like you don't have to do anything. <laughs> Um, you just have to have enough money to to buy a share of Intel. And so I was always interested in finance. Um, my brother, who's a year younger than I, we convinced my mom one day 
to take us down to the local Fidelity branch. And we opened up brokerage accounts. I think I was like 11 at the time. Maybe he was 10. Um, My dad was like, you know, the market's too hot. Like you guys shouldn't be investing now. You know, it's overpriced, blah, blah, blah. And this is like 95. So of course we know what happened the next like four years. Um, And so we, we did it. We opened these accounts and we made a ton of money, um, you know, for, for that age group. We got out in like the late 1999 period because we became these like Buffett disciples and we were like, oh man, this, you know, irrational exuberance, blah, blah, blah. I guess that's Greenspan, but you get the, the gist. Sure. And um, yeah, we were just sort of like into finance. And so when I went to college, I was like, I, I like this stuff. Like, I really like it. And it's also good because I know I'm, I'm going to make some money when I get out of school. Um, school is really expensive, so you should probably get something out of that. Um, I'm going to I'm going to study finance. Interesting. OK, so you, you get out of school. Walk me through your your journey up until select software reviews and, and deciding to get your MBA. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I was at college, I I always sort of had this idea in my head that I would be like a hedge fund manager or something like that, right? Like I had this like natural drive towards finance. And then when I uh, was a sophomore, my summer internship was at a two-person startup. Um, I'd done the previous semester abroad in Italy and basically like no company would hire me. So <laughs> except for this like one, like two person company that was like, yeah, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour to like do whatever we don't want to do. Um, and I just loved it. Like I was mostly doing sales, like outbound cold calling, but I did like some business development partnerships and stuff. And I just love the sort of impact you can have the creativity that you can exercise in a small company. And so I was like, you know what? Like I'd actually really like to start a company one day. Like maybe that's actually a really good goal for me to have. And so after college, I graduated in 08. Um, I had a job offer actually from Morgan Stanley to go join their like analyst program after school because I had done my junior year internship there. Um, and I did something that was really stupid where I actually let that offer expire um, it was like November of 2007, the economy was already starting to fall apart and I just didn't want to go work at Morgan Stanley. Cause I was like, I'm just going to be like a finance person okay. and I really want to start a company. And so I let that expire and I was like, you know what, the thing I really want to do is work in like a middle market investment bank. I'll work with the management teams. I'll learn about how to run a company. And so I just built like this uh, basically prospect list of like every middle market bank in the US um, who at that bank might be relevant to talk to. It could be like a founder, it could be somebody who's an NYU alum and just started reaching out to them cold, got a couple interviews, uh, got a couple offers. And I ended up at, at the time, what was the leading middle market bank um, doing M&A, sell side M&A advisory right after college. Very cool. Interesting. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so that was 08, and I so I sort of like you know landed my quote unquote dream job, super amped, um, moved from New York back to Boston to do this thing, and had just like a brutal year um, doing this kind of slave hours investment banking stuff, like 120 hour weeks. Wow. Um, I'm getting like some heartburn honestly, like 10 years later, just talking about this, or <laughs> 13 sure. years later. 
Um, really, you know, difficult place to work, like really tough culture. Um, and then like the market just started to fall out and, uh, in 09. So I'm like a year into the job and I get called into my boss's office one day and the founder of the firm's there. And I'm like, Oh my God, like what is going on here? And there's like some third party. And of course it's an HR person. And they're like, Hey, um, so we're letting go, like, you know, a lot of people today, (laughs) like, you're one of those people. Um, we're just going to have you like sign some paperwork and we're going to give you two months severance and, uh, good luck. And I was, you know, 23, um, had always been sort of like an achiever, you know, like I did decently at school and just sort of like had, you know, goal oriented, blah, blah, blah. Um, and all of a sudden you're, I was like out of a job and, uh, it was pretty devastating to be quite honest. Sure. I, I spent a year basically like working for free, doing these like internships as I looked for a job. I just really didn't want to fall behind my peers when it came to skills. And I sort of had this mentality of like, look, money is important, but I'm getting enough money from unemployment to live and even to save a little bit. The thing that's really going to be important long term is having experience and having skills and having a network. So just focus on building that. And so I worked at a small venture backed company that didn't really work out. And I worked for this like startup private equity firm. Uh, And then eventually I was fortuitous enough to get a job working at a large venture capital fund doing investing. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was sort of like, uh, the banking thing was probably like the worst year of my life followed by maybe the hardest year of my life. Uh, and then eventually getting this job that was a a challenging job, but it was so much fun because every single day you're talking to five or six entrepreneurs about their businesses and trying to figure out, you know, which one's interesting enough to bring to the partner and due diligence on eventually invest in, the people were awesome. The culture was awesome. Learned a ton. I'm still pretty tight with a lot of those people. And it just sort of gave me this like amazing uh, confidence back that I'd, I'd lost throughout the recession. And um, after a couple of years there, you know, I'd, I'd taken the GMAT when I was in college, mostly out of peer pressure, like a bunch of my friends had taken it. And um, <laughs> as you can probably tell, like I'm somebody who's like, oh, I don't want to get left behind. Sure. Um, so I, I took the GMAT in college, it was going to expire. And so I, I just applied to a bunch of business schools, ended up getting into HBS and uh, started there in the fall of 2012. Okay. So, yeah. Keep going. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, my, you know, my rationale for business school was it's a great brand. You know, Harvard is like those things like you get it on your resume it's kind of awesome um when i went to the admitted student weekend they they kind of have you fly in for a weekend where you meet a bunch of your future classmates and everybody was just off the charts uh people from all over the world doing everything from uh being you know navy seals or b2 pilots to having started their own businesses we had a guy that had just sold his company for 150 million bucks. He was like wow. the first person to ever get in without uh, an undergrad degree, dropped out undergrad. 
Um, just all these people who are just like off the charts and you're just like so stimulated and you're like, all right, like this is such a no brainer. It's going to be a bunch of money. It's a couple years where you're not working, but this just seems like what I have to do essentially. Sure. So yeah, went there, uh, did the MBA program for two years. Couldn't recommend it enough. Um, wanted to at that point like start to really focus on starting a business going back to my my goal that i'd set sophomore year of college and so i worked at a venture back startup for the internship between my first and second year out in silicon valley great experience when i started there we thought we were going to sell to google for a few hundred million bucks and six weeks in we laid off half the company um wow. so it was a full <laughs> you know, got a full experience there <laughs> Yeah, it, w it was pretty crazy, like the, the full startup experience um, in just a few weeks. And so that was a lot of fun. And then I started to teach myself how to program. Uh, I always wanted to try to go down the bootstrap path. Right. I'd worked in VC. I think VC is the rocket fuel that allows companies to reach billions of dollars of enterprise value in, in a decade or less. Um, but I also have a strong belief that VC money is only right for like a very small sliver of companies and it basically destroys the other companies. Yes. And I've just seen a lot of businesses that maybe got to like $5 million or $10 million of revenue and they'd raised $60 million and they weren't growing anymore. And it's like, man, if, if the founder just like owned this thing, like that would be amazing. They'd have this like freakishly profitable, like lifestyle, you know, quote unquote lifestyle business that is worth a lot of money, but they're buried under all this VC money and they're never going to see a dime. So interesting. I a hundred percent agree with you. I just think yeah. most people don't think of it like that. Right. Um, no. And, and especially I think people from like certain pools of the population, like if you go to Stanford and you start a company you raise a series a like that's just what you do you don't think about it and and you probably should think about it because a lot of those companies are not going to be a good outcome and if you understand that through like running the right tests etc you're going to be in a much better situation um i even and, and talk to people who you know are not from some of those like feeder sort of schools or backgrounds like google or facebook yeah. who are still thinking, well, we've got to raise money as our next milestone. And I'm like, why don't you get some customers first? Yep. You know, like, why don't you see if this is a business? Why don't you see if this is a business that you could just own and, and build a, a revenue pipeline off of and, and profits? Like, you know, when I look at like my dentist, like he's got a, you know, a million dollar a year business, but like he's living large. You know what I mean? yeah, fair. Like, that's pretty awesome. If you get a million dollar revenue business that has 30 or 40% margins, like you've got a really good lifestyle. So I think more people need to think about that a little bit more deeply. Well, but I also think it's an easier to create a million dollar business where maybe you take home a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and instead of trying to create like a hundred million dollar business, right? Like and I'm not saying you shouldn't try, but you need to think about creating a million dollar business and then a five million dollar business, then a ten yeah. million dollar business. But and then you got to realize, like, can you take your business from ten million to a hundred million? Do you have the time, money, resources, a million other things? Because I've had enough 
founders on the show that sometimes they say, my idea is a billion dollar idea. I know it. I know it. I know it. But yeah. They need to sell it to another company that can get them to that billion dollar idea. Yeah. And it's like, because they just don't have a massive team behind them to get it there or the money or, or a handful of other things. Right. And so I think just people need to be realistic about what they have. And I'm not saying you shouldn't kind of shoot for the moon, but you also need to be realistic at the same time. Like what can you do with what you have? And some people have more than let more or less. And it's just, it's so tricky sometimes, but you're right. Everybody wants to raise a hundred million dollars and kind of figure it out. But it's like, Maybe you should just not raise and create like a million or five million dollar business and live comfortably and maybe sell it off down the road. Yeah. And and it, it's all about priorities and egos and all this other stuff. Um, I think you raise a really interesting question around is it easier to start a smaller business versus a larger one? And, and a lot of VCs would argue that it's just as hard to do either. So why not go for the moonshot? Because it increases the expected value of your outcome as an entrepreneur. But I think what's interesting is that if you're going for these like zero to one sort of business ideas that are like truly de novo sort of markets or business models or products, then yes, it is almost as hard to build a million dollar business as is a hundred million dollar business because the key determinant of success is product market fit and you either got it or you don't. And if you then why not step on the gas and build a much bigger business? And, and I think that's totally true. But the vast majority, like 99.99% of new business ideas are not zero to one. They're N plus one. They're just like a derivative of something that already exists. Like if you're going to create like a new CRM for, I don't know, like CrossFit gyms, like that is, you know, Salesforce is a multi-billion dollar revenue company, but like you're not re you're not creating a CRM for the first time. You're going after like some super niche market and that's not probably a venture backed opportunity unless I'm underestimating the size of the CrossFit world. Um, like that's an amazing thing for like three hackers to build and scale and get to like five or 10 million of ARR. And that business is still super uh, valuable. Um, but it's just, it's not going to be the unicorn. Sure. Well, I also think too, there seems to be a movement of venture capital to only invest in companies that are starting to generate revenue already. Right. And so you need to have customers before they'll even put a large chunk of money in. And it, that always kind of, I, I find that kind of interesting in, in yeah. the sense that, well, they're getting more cautious and, and trying to make sure your idea is validated but then sometimes it's like, well, if I'm already pulling in money, I don't need venture money. So like, it's an interesting kind of dynamic, right? Yeah, it's it's funny to think about like why does that dynamic exist, and it, the implication is that like there's not enough capital to fund these like earlier stage ideas. But I think what's actually going on is that there's different types of capital and yeah. entrepreneurs that are able to marshal the other types of riskier capital and get to a revenue stage are basically like graduating to VC, which is maybe like grad school and, and high school is like your friends and family and college is like angel investors. Um, and so 
Yeah, it kind of, it makes you think a little bit. Um, But I I also think that for the most part, venture dollars are really designed at this point to scale businesses. And so they find these companies that it's like, hey, I know with a pretty high degree of certainty that if I have $10 million, I'll be able to turn that into a $10 million annuity forever through subscription revenue because if I put it into sales or put it into marketing or whatever your business requires, that's just what's going to happen. And I've already proven it out by taking, you know, the friends and family money and angel money, et cetera. And that's where venture money is super powerful. The other use case, of course, is when you have something that requires large amounts of money that is truly novel um, and requires large amounts of money before becoming a commercial product, like maybe some new types of AI, pharmaceuticals, stuff like that. No, totally. So you founded select software reviews how did that come to be and what exactly is it yeah sure so at select software we are trying to be the authority on who are the best software vendors within the hr and recruiting software universe okay so if you think about the head of hr at a thousand person company They've got to buy a payroll system. They've got to buy a recruiting, various recruiting systems. They've got to have employee engagement, onboarding. There's probably like 30 or 40 tools that they need to do their job. And then there's also all this other stuff around like, well, we want to have more people of color on our engineering team or more female executives. You know, what are the tools that help us get to that point? And that's like the next level stuff. But even at a baseline, there's lots of tools. And within each category, there are hundreds of different vendors, and it's really hard to figure out which one of these are vaporware, which one of these are good, bad, and therefore, who should I partner with? And so what we do is we spend all day long doing demos, talking to practitioners, talking to VCs, talking to anybody that we can who's smart to understand, okay, in the payroll sector, who are the top like seven to 10 companies that you should actually look at when you're looking at payroll? background screening, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's basically what we do at Select Software. We write it up in a free content that's readily available on the internet. We make money through cost per click advertising. Interesting. Okay. So, but how did you come up with the idea and decide to actually build this thing? Yeah. So a a couple of different factors. So I'd, I'd started this other business in the HR space called NextWave where we were one of the vendors. We were a solution that helped companies to uh, recruit people using inbound marketing uh, techniques. And I did a lot of the sales and marketing for that business. And what I realized is that most of these folks who are running HR and talent acquisition are incredibly overworked and under-resourced. They are a cost center within the organization and therefore like the CEO like doesn't want to hire more recruiters because it just adds to the cost. They want to hire more salespeople because that adds to the top line. Um, so they're just asked to do a lot with a little. And therefore, like the idea of becoming an expert in buying tools is way down the priority list. So they can go online and they can look at different review websites and they're all very, very shady. And so I was like, oh, wow, there's this problem that exists. I really like software. I like to learn about this stuff. And I also really love to teach. Um, I started this web series called Whiteboard Wednesdays as part of our marketing strategy that was pretty popular, where I do a two-minute whiteboard video every Wednesday, kind of similar to Rand Fishkin at Moz, 
if anybody's like an SEO person out there. And I was like, man, like if I could just basically take like whiteboard Wednesdays, which is like this thing that's kind of working and focus the content on what HR software to buy, that's, that could be a business. And so I spun up a website, I created a bunch of content and did a bunch of stuff from an SEO perspective to try to get it to rank. And uh, lo and behold, like people started sending me emails being like, hey, Phil, like this was really helpful or giving me shout outs on social media. A woman gave a keynote uh, speech at the largest HR conference in the country last summer and like referenced the website, which was crazy, Um, you know, without kind of like telling us or anything, she was going to do that. And so all these things started happening and I was like, all right, like there, there's something going on here. And so I hired a general manager to run NextWave, uh, freed up some time in my calendar and started focusing full time on select software last summer. Okay, very cool. Okay, so you quickly kind of covered it, but I want to dive a bit deeper. So if I'm a HR person and I'm looking for software, how do I actually use your service? Yeah, so you almost certainly go to Google, you type in like, what's the best Apple can tracking system, (laughs) which is like one of these things that, that has existed for a long time. It probably sounds really sexy, especially if listeners like aren't in the HR space, like Apple can tracking system. Um, this couldn't sound more boring in my opinion, but that's what you do. You go into Google, you type in what's the best Apple can tracking system or best ATS. And then you magically end up on select software reviews. Um, we're usually, you know, ranking in the top one or two or three for queries like that. And you get to this page and we're like, Hey, here's what we did. We, we did a few hundred hours of research. We did X, Y, Z amount of demos, talked to this many experts. Here are the ones that we recommend. None of them paid us to be on this page. Here's why we recommend them. And by the way, if you're going to buy a new applicant tracking system, here's all the other stuff you need to know. Here are pricing guidelines. Here are questions you should ask on demos. Here's how you don't fuck up your implementation. Like all this stuff that if you do a good job, your business is going to improve and you're going to look like a rock star. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. So I, I get to the site, you guys broke it up by categories and kind of best HR software. How to, let's talk about those categories and, and why you guys chose to break them up like that. Yeah. So I just try to put myself in the mind of the HR leader. And I, I spent a lot of time every week with people, um, basically doing like free consulting. <laughs> like okay. I, I have like a link on our website that's like to my calendar and people can book office hours. I've got a couple slots every week. I I'm on the board of like the largest, uh, nonprofit sub chapter for HR people in the country. No and it's, it's all about just understanding the persona of like what somebody care about. And that's how we've structured the content on the site. People are really focused on tools. Um, and they're also to a lesser extent focused on use cases. And that's sometimes the content we do on our blog is like, you know, that whole like, Hey, let's get more people of color on our engineering team or, or what, what have you. Okay. Interesting. So you mentioned it quickly. How do you guys monetize the platform then? Yeah. So we do a cost per click revenue model. So let's say on a given category, there are 
10 companies that we really love. We always delay any sort of like advertising conversation with the demos. Um, so if somebody's like, oh, okay, like what if we wanted to buy advertising? It's like, let's not talk about that. We don't want to understand like if you're interested or not or whatever. We just want to see if you're one of the best. Okay. When somebody is selected to be one of the best, we say, if you want to have a link to a landing page versus your homepage, which converts at a higher rate, if you want to have a trackable link, um, you can pay us in our cost per click basis. It's usually like a couple hundred bucks a month. Okay. And that's how the business works. So it is undeniably like under optimized from a monetization perspective. Like our competitors would laugh at us because we could be making so much more money. Um, we also every single week get emails from companies who say, how much do you want to be on XYZ page? And those companies are almost always terrible. Um, and so we for them. Um, and so we're not, we're not making the big bucks like we could be, um, at least in the short term. But my my hope is that in the long term, this resonates with people. They start sharing at more conferences. And over time, we build that trusted brand, which I think is what you really need to build lasting value. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. But I think that's also extremely difficult to do. It sure is, <laughs> especially especially for a capitalist like me, right? Like, sure. I'm a, I'm the guy who, when I was 10 years old, was like, man, I want to invest in the stock market and make tons of money, right? Sure. Um, and so, and, and there are those times when you're like, maybe we should just like have this company on the site. Like, they've got a few hundred customers or whatever. Like, they can't all be wrong. Um, but I, I just sort of like keep thinking about that North Star because at the end of the day, like our business is all about search engine optimization. And I want to believe in the underlying philosophy of Google search algorithm, which is like doing right by the user. Right. And so if we do right by our user, we're going to continue to rank highly. We're going to continue to build a brand. And in the long term, I'll make a lot more money. And in the short term, I'm making enough to keep the lights on. Got you. No, no, it makes makes a lot of sense. So how how do you kind of decide how to evolve the, the platform and the company over time? Because obviously things are changing. AI is coming in, a, a mm. bunch of other kind of uh, different ways to kind of hire people. How do you guys kind of keep up with that and find out or and figure out you know, what's kind of too early stage, what's very relevant, what's coming next? How do you guys kind of stay up on top of all that stuff? Yeah, so there's like a, a loose and evolving rubric around evaluating these companies. And a lot of it's actually based on my venture capital days. Okay. I think that companies vote with their wallets. If you've uh, got, you know, uh, high retention, that's a really good sign it the rule of 40 is something i sort of live by which basically states that your growth rate plus your profitability should be greater than 40 percent and that's meant to capture the really high growth company that might have 200 percent growth but negative 100 percent cash flow margin if you add those together it's 100 percent, so it's greater than rule 40 and, it, and it's also like some of these just really big companies that have gotten to scale and maybe they're growing at 6% a year, but they've got 40% margins. 
Um, so there's some like financial metrics in there. There's demos. We have a great advantage in that we get to usually talk to like head of product or CEO. Right. When we get the demos, it's not like a sales rep who can't answer half your questions. Um, it, and a lot of it honestly is just like continuing to talk to the smartest people in the space to understand you know, how real is AI? Like, what are the actual use cases? Or what, what are the vendors that everybody has loved the last five years, but they've just kind of fallen off a cliff for one reason or another? Because uh, that's really valuable, too. Like, Google yeah. just got shut down, you know? And that, that was like a shocker to a lot of people that Google shut that thing down. Um, and, and so it's just kind of trying to stay one step ahead of stuff like that. Interesting. So... You you mentioned you kind of bootstrapped this at the beginning. What did what does that mean to you, and and why did you decide to bootstrap this? Yeah, so bootstrapping to me means that you might put in like a couple thousand bucks of your own money, and, and that's sort of also a function maybe of my stage of life where I I don't have like an eight figure net worth that I can you know, deploy uh, like a million bucks into something. So yeah, for me, it's like, let's take a few thousand bucks, let's run some tests, let's just try to be like really data-driven and disciplined about different hypotheses. I'll, I'll be honest, like the first like four or five months I had this thing up and running, I ran a few tests and I was like, oh, this is not a viable business. Um, I can't do paid acquisition, like that doesn't make sense at all. It's, it's a weird business in that like you have to develop these uh, commercial relationships on a one-off basis versus like, a lot of these best of websites that are just Amazon affiliates, if you're doing like a B2C sort of good. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, from a capital perspective, like that's kind of what I mean. And I also did a consulting gig while I got this thing up and running to just make like cash flow in the short term until it got to a ramen profitability sort of point and now a bit beyond that. Um, and for me, like, why did I do that? It's because I, and not doing anything that's truly novel. There are probably 100 or 200 competitors out there for my business, everything from Gartner to Captera, which is actually owned by Gartner, uh, and you know, consultants and websites and review sites and all, all this stuff. And so it's kind of like, all right, like you're just trying to carve out a niche here and do it better than other people in ways that might not scale. like. For me to scale into other verticals will be very challenging because I'm writing all the content, I'm doing all the videos, I've tried to outsource it, but it's really hard to find people that have high quality thought leadership. Most of it's just sort of like keyword stuffing, content farms. So for me, this doesn't make sense to be a uh, venture-backed company. I've met up with, you know, ex-colleagues in VC, just like get coffee and like chat about stuff. I'm starting to do some secondary investing to give employees liquidity in, in private companies. And one of their first questions is always like, so are, are you like raising a seed round? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I don't want to ruin this thing. Like, why do I want to raise a million dollars if this thing maybe only has the potential to be a two or three million dollar revenue company? Like, that's crazy. Like, if it gets a two or three million of revenue and it's a 50% EBITDA thing, like I'm pretty darn happy, but I'm not if I've got a board full of VCs who want a hundred million dollar exit. Yeah, interesting. No, fair enough. So you mentioned you you learned or taught yourself how to code. 
why did you do that and and how do you think that's brought value in running your own company yeah i i did it because i thought it was essential to start a technology business and okay. um I didn't want to have a $40,000 budget to build an MVP that probably wasn't going to work and needed to be iterated on 10 times and it would, you know, have slow iterations and all this stuff. And, and that's when you really need to raise money to have engineers to, to do this stuff. But if you can do it yourself, you can really focus on that part of the process in the beginning yourself and you can move fast. And you can also have a much deeper understanding of everything that's going on within your business because you know how the API endpoint works. Um, and so for me, it's it's been a great tool set. I haven't coded too much in the last couple of years because eventually you get to a scale where it doesn't make sense for you to spend your time on it. Right. But it allows me to just like understand a lot of things at a much deeper level, to manage better, to in the select software use case, like vet solutions better, have deeper conversations with a head of product to call bullshit when that's appropriate. So it's been a really phenomenal thing. It's, it's a lot of brain damage. It takes a lot of time. Um, and you can really only do it probably at certain points of your life when you have lots of time <laughs> and your, the opportunity cost of your time is not very high. But if you're like a young person out there, you're an aspiring entrepreneur, especially if you don't want to go the VC route, you want to be in control of your own destiny, I would highly recommend it. I mean, for NextWave, I literally built the first version that we sold to Dropbox. Like we had Dropbox as a customer, like a paying enterprise customer for a piece of software that I built more or less from scratch. Co-founder came in at the end and helped to um, kind of finish it up. But uh, that's, you know, that's the state of software development where you get good at one of these stacks and a year later you can build like it's not going to be, you know, the greatest enterprise software thing ever. And if an engineer from Google ever looked at it, they'd laugh at you, but it's good enough to sell. Yeah. Well, interesting. What, what tech stack did you pick just out of curiosity? I picked Django, oh, which is sort of the rails for Python. Yeah, totally. Well, the thing that I think people don't realize about enterprise software and you don't realize it until you start using it most of it is atrociously bad and so outdated. So even if you get something that's like terrible out, it's light years ahead of most enterprise software and companies, I think, understand that. So if you get something out there that's terrible and you're not proud of, you're only going to go up from there. Right. And I like I've been in that boat where just like, let's just put something out there and see what happens. Right. And I've worked on stuff where it's almost like embarrassing. And I'll tell you, and you can tell me if you agree with this or not. It's like nothing motivates you to build better software than if you're embarrassed by what's out there and your users are using it or viewing it live online. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. You you hit the nail on the head. And it just – that's like – Beyond when I was doing investment banking and I had some boss like screaming at me all the time if I yeah. didn't get everything done, like that's the only other time in my life where I've been able to like work through the night and not really think twice about it. Totally. And like I've even launched ideas, just like rough ideas, like I'll build a quick landing page and I won't even upload like images or logos sometimes. I'll put like placeholders in. And people will message you like, oh, your images aren't looking I'm like, or loading. Yeah. It's like, 
you you actually took the time to go to the site. I'm like, that's awesome. And then they'll give you like, this is a good idea. I want to be a part of it. And it's like, okay, I spent two hours on this landing page and it's like broken. And I said, it's not even really live yet. And people yeah. are already like giving you feedback. It's like, just who cares if it's embarrassing, right? Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, and, and to your point, like that is such a motivator, especially if people start engaging with it. Totally. And you're like, gosh, there's like, there's a spark here, and if I blow on it, it'll turn into a fire. Exactly. But you don't, like, there's no point in spending 40 hours or 400 hours on something, and then you launch it, and nobody cares. It's like, i rather have something that you're embarrassed about, you put up, and somebody's, like, pointing out its flaws and saying, like, how can I get involved, and how can I help you? And you put two hours into something, you know? Yeah. And also, I mean, some... I'm just reflecting on a conversation I had last week with a founder who's they incorporated in 2016. Here it is four years later. Um, and they've spent like 60 K of their hard earned savings yeah. on software developers to build like some random program. They've never launched it. They've never gotten any feedback. And I'm like, well, here, are, here are all these like no code ways that you could test your sort of key hypotheses around this stuff. And, and nobody needs to know that, you know, it's uh, Zapier in the background or, or whatever, and, and nobody cares either. Yep. So, yeah, I just uh, it, totally it's, it's interesting because, like, at the end of the day, the sad reality is, as somebody that's been on the design side of software for, like, decades now, nobody cares how good, bad, or other your technology is. They just want it to work for what they needed to do. It's like... I don't, they don't care or even think about if you push that button, it does like all this cool stuff in the background. They don't care if that button doesn't take them to where they want to go, then it's a failure. Right. And it's really weird to wrap your head around that. And the other point I, I think that's relevant to our conversation that, that really got me really thinking over the years. And I wish I remember who told me it's like, what's good design in your opinion. What's good design, Phil? Uh, maybe design you don't notice. Interesting. But the, what got me really thinking, the answer was if, if the designer and the person it's for likes it. Mm. And you're yep. like, I, I guess, like, if if you build something for nurses, for example, and neither one of us are nurses, and we hate it, but nurses use it, right. well, it's good. It's Yeah. Like, so just people get so caught up in their head about it has to be perfect and it has to be this and that. It's like, nah, you'd be surprised what passes and especially in enterprise. Totally. And, you know, you get a kind of a glimpse into that working in VC and, and talking to so many different founders. And a lot of these businesses are like five or 10 years old yeah. and they become interesting because, they get to a, a certain scale and it's like, wow, this thing looks like a piece of garbage, but you're doing 10 million of revenue. You bootstrapped it. It's grown at 50% a year. And we're pretty confident if we put money in this thing, it could probably grow at 150% a year. Um, and, and you're right. Like none of the users really, you know, care if the UX isn't that good. We live in these, you know, California East coast sort of bubbles. Um, but the majority of folks, especially in, in B2B, don't care as much. No, fair. And and that's the thing. So if you 
build it over time and you launch something for enterprise that has a really great user experience and sometimes you're just limited by the data that you're allowed to have but if you if you just i literally say the bar is so low it's like buried in the ground and it's like if you dig the bar out of the ground and like just place it on the ground yeah. as your version one you're successful right. or have the potential to be successful but if you can move it up the ladder a few pegs especially from a ux ui perspective and speed like you you should be able to grow your business like astronomically and potentially exit for a decent amount of money yeah and a lot of back to this point around product market fit i'm just such a strong believer that like you've either got it or you don't and that's Fair. the key to tournament like there's a lot of crazy terrible entrepreneurs that are really rich because they just found a product people want and that you know the the stuff we're talking about is an optimizer. It'll, you know, increase your users by 30% or, or whatever, but it's not going to make it so you succeed, succeed or fail. Um, and so it's actually kind of a nice lever to pull like down the road when you've got a base of customers that's growing and you're like, all right, let's take this to the next level by doing this like very basic thing that we know is going to work that we didn't prioritize in the beginning because it's not the thing that's the most important thing. And when you're building a company in the early stages, you can only focus on one or two things. Yeah, no, it, it's it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad that you're open and honest about this stuff, right? And I, I think at the end of the day, what I really try to do with the show, is just get people thinking about their own situation because everybody's in a different situation. Nobody's gonna be the same. You can't follow somebody else's path Right. And you need to figure out your own path and what works for you and kind of where you are in life. Sometimes you can quit your job and, and try to build something and take two years to do it. Other times you got a family and a mortgage and all this other stuff and, and you have to side hustle two hours a week. And there's nothing wrong with either one. It's just you shouldn't just say just because everybody else does something, I need to do this. You need to figure out what works for you or what's going to work for you and try to build something. And it doesn't have to could take you three years to build a side a business that you eventually go to full time and you start out as a side hustle there's no like right or wrong formula and i think you would agree with that yeah i've got a friend who had a side hustle for five years before okay. focusing on it and he focused on it three years ago this year they're going to do 10 million dollars of ebitda um and i'm also just reflecting on this whole you know like choose your own path thing i think one of the dangers of entrepreneurship is that you meet somebody who's really successful, you have coffee with them and you're like, man, it's going to be such a great meeting. And it is. And they tell you like their advice from their very closed minded view of the world and what worked for them. And, yeah. and that could be relevant. It could be 30% relevant, could be 90% relevant. Even the stuff that we're talking about right now from design perspective, like I'm probably mostly saying this because I'm an enterprise guy. But like, I know you had uh, Rahul from Superhuman, like he would probably be like, you guys are crazy. Like design is everything, right? Cause he's got this like B2C thing, like Gmail supercharged and design. If he didn't have the design right on that guy, like it probably wouldn't have taken off. And so, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It's, you gotta, you gotta parse what's relevant and that's probably the hardest thing about entrepreneurship. Um, Cause it's going to dictate where you spend your time, but what, what is relevant for your business and uh, try to not take everything that we say for, for uh, what it's worth. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And I, I think it also gets, you should get 
as many people's as possible opinion on what you're trying to do because you're right like you might take 100% of what somebody says and, and try it all you might take 10% you might take none of it to be honest with you and sometimes yeah. the most successful people will tell you stuff and you're like none of this is relevant to me like this is great if I had 10 million dollars to spend I could do all yeah. this stuff but right. you know I have two grand and I'm learning to code myself like that's a reality for a lot of people right and two grand might yeah. even be too much yeah yeah, totally. And it and it kind of sucks. Like I remember somebody actually told me like one of our quote unquote advisors for our first business, he would just spew ideas for like an hour and a half. And he's like, and now it's your job to figure out what are the 10% of these ideas that are actually relevant. And I'm just like, that's such like a, a jerk thing to say. It's like, <laughs> why don't you do some filtering? You know what I mean? But most people can't. Yeah. And that's why I, I think the very few people who can, who have that like intellectual discipline, most of them are honestly like investors because that's sort of like one of the key traits. And if you can do that, like you're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars um, just by being able to stay level headed and understand what's relevant for one business versus another. And so it's just like one of these things where it's really hard. But if you stay lean, if you test things rigorously, like you can very quickly understand many pieces of advice, what's relevant, what's not. No. Fair enough. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention? Yeah, sure. So if uh, you know, you're having trouble sleeping or you are <laughs> one of the few people that needs new recruiting software, check out selectsoftwarereviews.com for some nice in-depth content on various HR tech vendors. Um, I've got a blog at Phil Strazula uh, that I've written on for the last like 10 years. I'm not very prolific, but there's a bunch of random stuff in there that people email me about that they like. Or um, look me up on LinkedIn if you want to connect and uh, chat or, or whatever. Perfect, Phil. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time into your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future.